Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 12th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It's going to be packed. Everyone's going to be mailing holiday gifts. So annoying. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. For a special no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Do you have someone on your gift list that is impossible to shop for? Have you considered gifting razors? How about a Harry's razor? Harry's Winter Winston set is only 30 bucks for a sleek chrome razor, three high-quality blades, their amazing foaming shave gel or shaving cream, and it's already wrapped, and shipping is always free. And as a special limited-time offer for the holiday, Harry's is gifting all listeners to Inquiring Minds $5 off the Winter Winston set with the code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. Harry's, a shave good enough to gift. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Now imagining opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make this a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. This week, I've turned over the reins for our interview to Charlie Zadkowalski. He's one of our most engaged listeners, and he first caught my eye with an email in which he said that science communication just might be one of the most important parts of being a scientist. Of course, I heartily agree. Though he does have a master's degree in oceanography, he's perfectly suited to interview this week's guest on the topic of citizen scientists. And I'm sure you'll find him just as engaging as I did. Charlie, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here, Andre. So tell me a little bit about the person you interviewed and why you chose this particular topic. 
So I'm going to work into the subject a little bit by telling a brief story. Uh, in the year 1900, after becoming concerned about waning bird populations, an ornithologist, uh, his name was Frank Chapman, he decided that instead of hunting birds on Christmas, which was typically the tradition at that time, he would like to enlist the help of others to count them instead. Uh, now, 114 years later, people all over the Western Hemisphere continue to celebrate this, the largest and longest-lasting scientific Christmas tradition we have the annual Christmas bird count. Uh, but besides being fun and educational, the data collected during this event have greatly helped our understanding of bird population health and are giving us an even greater understanding of what bird health can tell us about climate change. Programs such as this, where citizens untrained in an area of science volunteer to observe or take measurements have come to be known as citizen science. And, you know, citizen science really has kind of taken off in the last few years, too. I mean, it sounds like this is a, a, an experiment that's been around for a while. But I feel like there's, you know, a, a kind of resurgence of interest in, in citizens doing science recently. Is that true? You're exactly right. And I think it's the Internet that has been the catalyst to allow that to happen. Communication all over the world, allowing data to transmit even farther, even faster. Uh, I think that's the key. Awesome. So, so tell us who you interviewed. My interview today is with one such citizen scientist, Sharman Apt Russell. She teaches writing at Western New Mexico University and Antioch University in Los Angeles. She is an award-winning author and has published numerous books and essays ranging on topics from childhood poverty and hunger, archaeology in the southwestern U.S., to her own pantheism. Her most recent book, Diary of a Citizen Scientist, chronicles her endeavor to contribute to the pool of knowledge surrounding one particular type of insect, the tiger beetle. Here's a clip from that interview. When I was writing about butterflies, I was talking to the keeper of entomology, Dick Vainwright, at the London History Museum. And he said something that stayed with me uh, since then. And it was, you could spend a week studying some obscure insect, and you would then know more than anyone else on the planet. And I really love that kind of uh, sense of there's so much to discover. There's so much still to know on the earth. And I love that idea that I could enter into it uh, as as an amateur, as a non-entomologist. I think that's it's so fascinating to hear someone so enthusiastic about science. And of course, this notion that anyone can be an expert if they just put some time into it. I think that really makes it puts the citizen and citizen scientists in the sense that it really is available to anyone who wants to do it. I talked to her about how it affects people in two ways. It can both educate and it can make people more engaged. And actually three ways, it can actually contribute to a body of science that uh, maybe it was too tedious or too time-consuming or cost too much money, or maybe people just didn't know it existed until somebody happened upon it. Citizen scientists are able to do that. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about a couple of science things that happened this week. Uh, so, Charlie, what's been on your mind? One particular story really caught my eye, and it probably because I'm an oceanographer, or at least that's where my degree came from. And it talks about the explanation for the Earth's biggest migration. A lot of people don't know that the largest migration of any organism on Earth actually happens in the ocean, and it happens every single day. And it's plankton that rise from the lower surface of the ocean to the upper surface of the ocean at night. Wow, I, I had no idea that that was considered a migration and that it was considered the biggest migration on Earth. Yes, every single day. And people have only been able to speculate exactly why it happens. There's a few differing theories uh, why they do it. So why would plankton, 
who are dependent upon the sun move farther away? Well, we think at during the daytime, they want to move farther away from UV radiation that may harm them, that we they may want to move away from predators that can see them. There's numerous different theories for why they do it. But why do they also rise back to the surface at night? So we didn't quite have an explanation for it. This paper that I'm thinking of gets a little bit closer to the heart of it. Um, some scientists decided to go about it in a sort of different way by looking at the hormone melatonin. Melatonin is found in the entire animal kingdom except sponges. But um, we know that this hormone has played a role ever since uh, some of our earliest ancestors. And we can find, like I said, we can find it in the entire animal kingdom. So I know what melatonin purport purportedly does in humans. You know, it helps us to uh, coordinate our sleep-wake cycles and our circadian rhythm makes us sleepy. That's why people take melatonin pills to fight jet lag. Um, whether or not that might be effective is still another story. But, uh, you know, what, what do they do to, for these creatures? Or what does it do for these creatures? So that was the big mystery. And the prevailing theory was that it was primarily there because we know that melatonin is very good at absorbing uh, radical ions. We thought that it was there to simply prevent damage to the cell. Um, and as, as it turns out, there's more to that story. So how, what's the connection between melatonin and migration? It all started when some researchers actually found that melatonin stimulated some motor neurons in the larval form of a polychaete worm. They saw that when they actually introduced melatonin, it could make the it could change the rhythm of cilia that beat uh, on the, the organism itself. Wow. So, so they introduced melatonin and all of a sudden these guys move. Mo they move differently. And they found that actually when they introduced melatonin, it changed the rhythm so that they were pausing more in between each beat. So just kind of like the flapping of a bird's wings, the flapping had more of a, uh, a pause in between each flap up and down. So when melatonin wasn't present, the, the cilia beated at a more regular and uh, more frequent rate. And when melatonin was there, the beating of the cilia actually slowed down. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So one of the topics that I wanted to touch upon also involves flapping, but of a completely different uh, set of species, and that is in birds. So this week, there were some 28 papers published in many different journals uh, that analyzed 45 different bird genomes and, and really are, are said to have completely changed the way we think about the evolution of birds. Now, there's been some uh, some chatter on Twitter, in particular, uh, science journalists who are complaining about the fact that we've got these 28 papers, and you know they all seem interesting and important. But you know who, who can cover all 28 in in such a you know short short period of time? So there's first this controversy about releasing so much information at once. Um, but then you know if you do go a little bit more deeply into the 28 papers, there are some pretty interesting findings. So let me first talk a little bit about um, the the couple of findings that I found most interesting. So one is that, um, you know, the fact that you're able to uh, sort of sequence a number of these different bird species, all of a sudden we have a much better understanding of what aspects of the genome in a bird are important and what aspects are not. And, you know, we kind of think, we know that there's, um, you know, the human genome has parts that we don't understand yet, and maybe they're we call it junk DNA because we don't understand it yet. Maybe it's junk. Maybe it has some function that we don't know yet. Um, and it seems that in birds, their their genome is much smaller. And so there didn't seem to be as much junk DNA. Uh, and so that's what we're kind of seeing in, in some of these uh, studies is that, in fact, you know, the the amount of information that we don't know about what what it's doing in these birds seems to be a lot smaller compared to what we don't know in the human genome. 
I actually found this the most interesting part of, of their finding uh, because it not only does it relate most to uh, why we might want to study our own genomes, but uh, I think it has a lot to say about how we might design, you know, synthetic biology is kind of the future of where things are going. And I think it might indicate uh, techniques uh, that we may not have thought of uh, in the future. Yeah. And so the other thing that I found really interesting, too, is that um, there's a big similarity between humans and songbirds uh, that is different from almost any other animal species in that humans and songbirds actually share some of the same brain circuits when it comes to creating song in in their case and speech in our case. So as a singer myself, I'm obviously very interested in this. Um, and it turns out that there are about 10% of the genes or of the genome, the bird genome is activated and modulated by singing, which is an incredible amount. Uh, when you think about this is just one activity that they do, but clearly it's fundamental to their survival and their, their reproduction and so on. Uh, and so I wonder if what we can learn from this massive amount of genetic information that is affected by singing. I was astounded at how much of their their genome was actually dedicated to just to just to song, uh, just to speech. Um, and I found it just as interesting because, uh, just like you said, we do share these same circuits, the same genes that, well, the same genes turn on the same circuits. Um, yeah, it's totally cool. Uh, and so I think you know as as. We're all able to digest these papers a little bit more deeply. I think you'll hear more and more in the news about what some of these studies are finding. Um, but it really is interesting to think that we're going to learn a lot about the evolution of birds who already have an interesting evolutionary history. You know, they're sort of closest uh, relatives to the dinosaurs and so on. And I think that this is going to really just help us understand how these how, how birds have evolved. And I think we should expect these types of massive uh, findings uh, in the future, too, because like you said, this technology is progressing so quickly that we should expect to see a lot of genome dumps in the future and we'll have to sort through all of it. Yeah. And I guess the publications are going to have to decide whether it's worth it to actually do a dump like this or if they should spread out the data so that people like us can actually have time to digest it and report on it. Right. So, so let's take a short break and we'll be back with Charlie's interview of Charmin Apt Russell. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, it'll be packed. Everyone's going to be mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, then the mailman picks it up. It's so easy and convenient. And one thing that I love about it is that you can import addresses directly from Microsoft Outlook or QuickBooks, and that can make things way easier. So right now, get this special offer when you use the promo code MINDS, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Do you have someone on your gift list that is impossible to shop for? Have you considered gifting razors? How about a Harry's razor? Harry's came out with a limited edition line just in time for the holidays. Their giftable sets start at just $15 and shipping is always free with Harry's. Plus, Harry's is the gift that gives back. Harry's supports the community by donating 1% of sales and volunteering 1% of all employees' time with their community partner, City Year. 
Harry's Winter Winston set is only 30 bucks for a sleek chrome razor, three high-quality blades, their amazing shave gel or shaving cream, and it's already wrapped and shipping is always free. And as a special holiday offer, Harry's is gifting all listeners of Inquiring Minds $5 off the Winter Winston set with promo code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. That's right, even those of you who are already loyal Harry's users will get $5 off a Winter Winston set. You'll get the razor, three quality blades, and a tube of their foaming shave gel or shave cream for just $25. So go to harrys.com now and get $5 off their Winter Winston set with the code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. Harry's, a shave good enough to gift. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Now imagine opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make this a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. It's easy to set up, it's reliable, it's trusted by the largest universities and corporations. And as a desktop user, you'll find that MailRoot's user interface is simple and effective. If you're an email admin or an IT pro, they've built all of their tools with you in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoot supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mail bagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Sharman Apt-Russell. It's good to be here. I have to say that I really, really enjoyed reading your book because it kind of took me back to my college days uh, when I was traipsing through forests and through all kinds of environmental landscapes to collect specimens for some of my classes. Uh, So it was a really, it was a real joy to read because I felt like I was taken on the same journey that you were. Oh, thank you. That's good to hear. You've written books before on topics like childhood hunger, uh, your own pantheism, but this seemed like a different kind of departure um, from what you've been writing out in the past. I do know that you were environmental, uh, you're environmentally conscious and you're concerned about environmental conservation, but I kind of wonder what led to wanting to write about citizen science in general. Right, right. Well, yeah, actually, my undergraduate was in conservation and natural resources. And about 12 years ago, I wrote a book on butterflies. Uh, so I've always been interested in insects. I really like their scale. They're very democratic. You know, you can go in your backyard and, and be immediately engaged in that predator-prey relationship. Uh, when I was writing about butterflies, I was talking to the keeper of entomology, Dick Bainwright, at the London History Museum. And he said something that stayed with me uh, since then, and it was, you could spend a week studying some obscure insect, and you would then know more than anyone else on the planet. And I really love that kind of uh, sense of there's so much to discover. There's so much still to know on the earth. And I love that idea that I could enter into it uh, as as an amateur, as a non-entomologist. And so I just kind of kept that simmering, simmering, simmering in the, in, you know, the back of my mind over the many years. And uh, I also was always involved in other citizen science projects. So when I knew I wanted to really immerse myself in a citizen science project, uh, uh, insects just seem the way to go. I think I find that really fascinating because uh, I, I I had the same feeling reading that quote, uh, and it kind of gave me the same kind of well, I felt some 
childlike joy and, and having that feeling all over again, like, yeah, there really is so much left to discover. And uh, I really liked jumping in with you. I know it's so cheerful because, you know, we all live in a world where we talk about uh, climate change and, and apocalypse and, and bad news. I mean, that's the world of the environmentalist. And but to also see the other side that that the earth is still mysterious and and the world is still uh, undiscovered and there is still still so many ways we can engage with it and this kind of uh, sense of childhood wonder. Uh, yeah, that was really affirming for me. So you know, you, you mentioned that you wanted to get directly into studying insects because it seemed like a, a good fit for what you were used to. But why tiger beetles? There are so many of them, like you mentioned in the book. There are thousands of species and thousands of undiscovered species, and we know very little about all of them. Yeah, that's absolutely right, uh, Charlie. Well, I emailed uh, David Pearson, who is a scientist who's a big advocate for the citizen scientist and who believes that conservation biology, which is his field, really isn't going to be able to be very uh, useful unless it welcomes in a citizen scientist. So David also happens to be a world expert on tiger beetles. I emailed him and that afternoon, like immediately, he emailed back. And within a week, he was urging urging me to go out and study uh, tiger beetles. And he has, in the map of tiger beetles, he has all these little blank spots that he's trying to get people to fill in. So it really was through this enthusiastic and generous mentor that um, I found myself thrust into the world of tiger beetles. Wow. (laughs) It's really, uh, it's nice to hear that he was so, well, actually, it was clear even in his emails that you um, mentioned in some of your diary entries how uh, quickly he got back to you. It was exciting to hear how much he wanted you to get involved and how easy it was for him to try to explain what to do next. Um, he really did seem like a good mentor. He really did. And and I've written a lot of books on science, you know, and I've dealt with a lot of scientists over the years. And that's generally uh, my experience. You know, they're they love what they do. They're so enthusiastic about, about their life and their work. And of course, they, they feel that whatever it is, whether it's, you know, quantum mechanics or, or the Western red belly tiger beetle, whatever it is, it's, it's the center. It's, it's, everyone's going to be as interested as they are. And they love to share that enthusiasm. And, you know, I've always found scientists by and large to be extraordinarily generous and, and, uh, you know, good spirited towards, towards writers and citizen scientists and, and just anyone who will listen to them talk about their work. So I imagine you began studying the Western red-bellied because it was something that was near to where you live, and uh, there was relatively little known about it. Is that right? Right. So it's it's very abundant. It just thousands of Western red-bellied tiger beetles swarm the banks of the Gila River uh, where I live. But uh, oddly... Uh, for both David and my other mentor, Barry Nicely, and they're the co-authors of a field guide to tiger beetles in the United States and Canada. Pretty oddly, no one really knows uh, their larval biology. So no one knew where the females laid their eggs. No one knew what the first and second instar actually looked like. So again, it was just this kind of blank spot on the map of tiger beetles. I began looking up images of all the tiger beetles as I was reading the book, and I have to say, 
it, I, with all of the thousands swarming some of the scenes you describe in the book, I, I it's just really hard to imagine that you're able to see what you really wanted to see. But I guess you were able to develop that over time after just studying them so long. Well, yeah, they talk about the search engine, you know, that you find for, uh, I think I had seen tiger beetles for years. They're, they're so small and they skitter around on the, on the riverbank, but I hadn't, I hadn't taken the time. I hadn't taken that opportunity to, to look more closely. And, and that's, of course, what excites me about citizen science and science is it makes you look more closely. Um, so if you looked at all those images, you know that they're pretty horrific, scary, uh, you know, uh, charismatic, you know, extraordinarily, extraordinary creatures, you know, those big mouth parts and those, uh, you know, that, that, that's that predator look to them. Um, you'd hate for them to be any bigger, frankly. And I love the way you described their behaviors while they were standing there. Um, I don't mind sometimes personifying them or anthropomorphizing their behavior, because sometimes I think it adds a, a flair that makes it really fun to read and, and get in the mind of, of how you feel when you're standing there watching them. Um, their stilting behavior, uh, how a, a male would cling to the back of a female or, and disregard all other threats in the pursuit of uh, being the last one to hopefully impregnate that female. Right, right. I, I think I, I wrote an essay on this for Orion Magazine, and I think I described them as a nightmarish backpack from the female's perspective. I do have a lot of fun, um, you know, using figurative language and, and using my skills as a writer when I write about science. And as you say, I feel I can do that because my readers are so smart. I'm, you know, there's no, uh, error that, that, uh, that we're not talking real science or we're not talking, uh, about real behavior. I watched a previous interview you did on the, on one of your previous books on hunger. And in it, you mentioned that for you, writing is a creative process. This is probably not that abnormal, but writing is a creative process for you. You, and it's a thinking process as you're going along, as you're thinking, writing helps you to develop new ideas. When you're writing this book, were you trying to further citizen science? Were you trying to become closer to uh, a naturalist? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was trying to to do all of those things. Uh, writing is this act of discovery for me. Uh, writing also engages me more in my life. So for this uh, book particularly, I really was out in the actual place where I live, you know, much more intensely, being being alert more, being awake more. Um, of course, I was interested in exploring the romanticization I have about being a field biologist. Um, I really... I'm really amazed by citizen science. I, I use the terms renaissance and I use the term revolution. Um, it's kind of a revolution in science and how science and non-scientists are um, connecting with each other and in how it's shaping how we get research done. But for me, it's also that renaissance. It's that personal possibility of transformation that, that I mean, in my area, I do know people who were dentists who are now, you know, um, experts in lepidoptery. I, I do know people who uh, have become um, really masters in, in different fields from what they started out with. So that sense that life has all these potential still uh, at any time in your life, you can, you can grow and expand and, and do something new. It, it did strike me how you described the, this, 
actually the the entire uh, all the diary entries in the book did romanticize the act of going out and it was almost a meditative process to me as I was reading it uh going out to the riverbanks finding the tiger beetles uh capturing them bringing them home and doing what you needed to do to further the science as you were you were mentored but I at the end of the book I think I had the same feeling as you did when you described uh yes it is romantic but boy is it tedious and <laughs> boy is it hard work it is. Uh, you know, at the end of the book, I'm talking with uh, uh, the son of a friend of mine and who is a, who was a scientist. And he said, and he said, well, what did you learn? And I said, well, I learned why I didn't become a scientist, because there is so much detail work. There is, you know, it's, it's a whole different, you have to dedicate yourself to making charts and to, uh, you know, uh, transcribing numbers and, to, um, you know, doing a lot of things that I was glad to enter into, and just as glad that it is not my daily my daily life to do that. You mentioned early on that you wanted to be a field biologist your entire life. Was this just a little bit of fulfilling that? Or is that something you, you've always enjoyed being outside and this was just a way that you could uh, kind of also do, you could do both at the same time? Yeah, I've, you know, I've always enjoyed being outside. I, I went to live in a rural area. I've shaped my life so that I can be outside a lot. Um, I think doing that field biology and tasting it through the field seasons that I worked with tiger beetles, um, really deepened that sense, that, that engagement. Uh, so, you know, so I continue to do that. I, I resonated with that feeling too, because I, my first love was field biology. I, I studied oceanography in particular, but I really wanted to go out in the ocean and explore and find new things. And I was deterred because of the lifestyle you have, if that's your main job, it requires a certain lifestyle that I, uh, money in particular, that I wasn't sure I wanted to pursue. But I've always found the way I, the idea romantic, and it's something I'd always like to revisit. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, again, there's that Renaissance part that you can have that in your life. You can you can join the you know the Christmas bird count and and be out in the field for that period of time. You can you can study the you know the horned lizards in Texas through through the citizen science project there. You can you can do what I did, do a kind of personal citizen science project and. And have that be as much a part of your life as your your laundry and your children and your work. Uh, it's really opened up a lot of, you know, windows and doors for people, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think that it's primarily the Internet that has been able to take citizen science to uh, it's it almost seems like a tipping point in terms of the number of projects you can get involved with They're They're more numerous than I can find. And I thought I knew about a lot before I read your book, but just in reading your book and then uh, going online and just typing in citizen science, I found more projects that I could ever hope to get involved with. It's incredible. It's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the, the, the neurons forming in some prenatal brain. It's just all over the world. There's more every day and, you know, involving 10,000 people, involving 100,000 people, involving up to a million people. And definitely the internet has, has, has made this possible uh, in two ways. One, there's the crowdsourcing programs that actually work 
almost all online. So for Galaxy Zoo, you know, you can have almost, you know, a million people participate, uh, you know, in classifying galaxies and in furthering that. But there's also the programs that I'm most interested in are offline because I'm online already quite a bit as a teacher and a writer. Um, so I want to go out and join a research team, work with Nature's Notebook, uh, work with, you know, other uh, regional and state programs. But the data then is all uh, managed and collected online. And, and that's what makes the, the science really valuable is that you can work across landscapes. You can have a project that, that covers North America or that covers New Mexico or that covers an entire region with all these people doing what they do out in the field and then putting it all into an online database. I did find it really interesting when you described how it was to record data and your uh, how do I say you, you were you were not incompetent. <laughs> you were almost tempted to say, I, I think I could change that number because right. that would make more sense. Or so I wonder how often you found yourself ready to right. tick a box when you didn't see something because you, you'd hope it would further the movement or the, the goal of the movement, maybe. Right, right. Well, you know, I wanted to explore all the aspects of being a, a, a scientist and a field biologist, including the tedium and the sunburn and the, and the boredom. And also, yeah, sure that, that you, you're part of something larger and you want to contribute. And sometimes you realize that you're not because your information isn't, uh, isn't fitting into, you know, what the theory was or because you're not moving fast enough or for some reason. So there is that, that it interested me. Uh, my own impulse, you know, to to fudge the data. Um, I hasten to say that I didn't, and and I <laughs> I will say too that the best, one of the most wonderful moments of the entire experience uh, was that Barry, uh, my mentor, very nicely, and I had a theory as to where the female western red-bellied tiger beetle was laying her eggs, and we assumed that. Uh, the these tiger beetles disperse at the end of the season and they go into the uplands away from the riverbank and we thought well probably they are she's laying her eggs because no one could ever find the burrow hole so we thought well probably after they disperse you know then they go in the uplands miles away and that's why we can't find them so for one season i dissected the uh, ovaries of female western red-bellied tiger beetles and i collected them and uh slowly uh increased my skills at dissecting very very tiny ovaries under a microscope and then looked at all of them all the ones i collected through the summer. And it turned out that our theory was completely wrong, um, that uh, the female western red-bellied uh, tiger beetle was was leaving the riverbank, depositing an egg, coming back, leaving it, depositing an egg, coming back, leaving it, because the eggs were in all stages of maturation throughout the summer season, large, small, medium, from, you know, late June to August. So that was really a wonderful moment because... That is what science is about, having testable hypotheses that you prove right or wrong. And it's as important to prove something wrong as right. So, Yeah, it was really warmed to read that when you had to admit that your, pre your previous ideas weren't right. And yeah. uh, you had to kind of go back to the drawing board in terms of where you thought, what you thought was going on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that was, that felt like real science, you know, to... Yeah, in my experience, that is real science. I know, and I, I know. And I do learn more often from the mistakes than from 
uh, or, or from the ideas that I get wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you did find out some things about the beetle that no one else knew. Uh, maybe significant, maybe just good enough for taxonomy. I mean, I, you described you described stages of their life that no one has seen before, and at least no one has written down before. And when you dissected the insects, you found that some of their eggs were a different color, and that was kind of new. Yeah. Now, that's still a mystery. We We really don't know what that means. And it would involve further seasons of, of dissecting um, the western red belly tiger beetle again and also other uh, tiger beetle species that, you know, are in the same uh, riverbank. And certainly I was the the first, you know, to uh, document this first instar and second instar. And I still have the further mystery. We haven't yet found where the larval burrow holes are of the western red belly tiger beetle. So there were these discoveries made. Um, I think uh, because this was such a personal, small study, uh, when I look at the bigger picture of citizen science and, and the ways people engage, it operates on so many levels because there is the science getting done and, and there is the cumulative kind of collective power of a lot of people looking at a species distribution and behavior. But there's also that personal engagement of a lot of people getting closer and closer to the natural world, getting more and more excited um, and connected to, to the place they live in. And for me, one of the most exciting things about citizen science is how much it segues into environmental activism and and people looking at the water, people looking at, uh, you know, the plants and animals, people looking at that natural world and seeing its changes and, and falling in love with it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I had the same feeling studying oceanography. Uh, feeling closer to what you're studying really does help give you some compassion for what that environment is going through and how you're affecting it, how people around you are affecting it. it yeah, yeah, so I, I, for the, um, for an essay I wrote for Orion, I end it with, this is science and this is love. And I've come to believe they're the same thing. And, and actually, I really do believe that. I've, I've always been, uh, you know, a real advocate and fan of science because it seems to me it's about witnessing the world and kind of marveling at the world. And, um, you know, again, just kind of being in love with the world. It's clear that citizen science uh, at least has two modes that it can operate through. It's it's really good at educating, um, and it's really good at, I think, providing very basic and tedious observations that would take uh, money and resources that just aren't possible without volunteer effort. I wonder if you think that citizen science falls into one of those two camps, or it's it, both of those together are what really makes it special. Yeah, I, I think both of those together. Um, you know, certainly the online programs where Galaxy Zoo, we have millions of images from telescopes on Earth and, and, you know, orbiting out in space. We have millions of images from cameras, you know, being dragged across the ocean floor. We have, we just have all this data and, and it's just too much for, for, for 10 or 20 or 100 professionals to look at. So if you get 
a hundred thousand people looking at it, and if you have a kind of a redundancy in there, so that um, you know their accuracy rate is starting to get equal to professionals, then you can actually then we can actually look at all this information because it's it's not that much good having it if if no one has the time to actually decipher it or interpret it. So. Absolutely. Citizen science is doing that kind of crowdsourcing that that makes things possible. But at the same time, for every person doing that, I think they feel part of something larger. They feel part of science. They educate themselves in science. And my optimistically, I think they go on to make uh, better policy and to care about policy in society, to care about how science is used socially. I mean, I think the circle, the ripple effect just kind of keeps widening out and moves from interaction and engagement to education to policy. I completely agree. Uh, For me, it is just the love of nature, being out in nature that would, without money, still drive me to go outside and take the measurements when uh, I didn't when there's no impetus to do so. But on the other side of that, too, we're, we are getting real data. And it has been used in studies that are helping us learn more about our world and conserve. You mentioned the Christmas bird count. Um, numerous studies have, have been used using that data. Yeah, they they really have one of the premier reports on on climate change and bird populations in North America. And of course, the Christmas bird count started in, you know, 1900. So uh, they have this long database, you know, to look at. And and over the last few years, it's increased so much in number. I think there was over 71,000 people who participated in uh, in the last year count. So uh, that, they've got a lot of information to use and to look at. Do you find that citizen science uh, is maybe fit better for a mode of direct just observations and recording data, or in the case of something like the Mastodon Matrix project, where you are actually receiving samples and helping scientists kind of not really do busy work, but learning and helping with the tedium that might help learn something more in the future. Yeah, no, it's it's great because it does all of that. Uh, you mentioned the Mastodon Matrix. That's one that I happened to take in a third grade classroom. And that was pretty comical to watch all these miniature paleontologists kind of go through that uh, matrix with their toothpicks and cry out at excitement and drop their clamshells on the ground. And um, so on one hand, third graders are not... Um, you know, uh, paleontologist per se. Um, but that project was sent out to 3,000 classrooms around the United States. Uh, lots of hands, you know, looking through that matrix. And, and the study that came out of those classroom visits actually had more taxa, more, uh, species that they saw in terms of seeds than the few small professional studies. So lots of eyes, lots of human brains, lots of, uh, human energy. Can, can, as you say, you know, result in hard data in real science. Um, but it also results in a classroom of excited third graders. It, it also results in, in kids moving into the future, feeling more engaged, uh, with, with science and with life. So it's, it's kind of works on, on so many levels. Do you find that citizen science is uh, receiving any kind of pushback from either other scientists or people on the outside that that it looks a lot more like a waste of time or 
Well, you know, I think that was a fear. I mean, one thing to remember is how relatively new this is. Uh, Galaxy Zoo, you know, started in 2007, you know, a mere eight years ago. Um, so things are uh, kind of in their infancy to some extent. I think there's a fear that the data wouldn't be good enough, that there wasn't enough kind of quality control that scientists would push back. But frankly, I don't think that's happening very much. I think scientists are pretty excited to to see the enthusiasm, to get the word out there about the importance of what they're doing. I think it's not that hard to deal with issues of quality control, and they are being dealt with. Um, I think there's a lot of – some of the citizen science projects in my area, for example, are people going out to monitor archaeological sites uh, to prevent damage or people going out to inventory wilderness areas uh, uh, or potential wilderness areas. Uh, so there's such a range of things that that we absolutely need people to go out and do, and there just aren't enough professionals to do them. Right, Yeah. Do you think that citizen science will always be relegated to the the collection of of data, some very basic science, or do you think that it has potential to really drive uh, new research topics? Well, I know it has the potential to drive new research topics in terms of environmental science. I know that communities more and more are looking at what research questions interest them. And of course, often that's what is the quality of my air? What is the quality of my water? Uh, what is the, you know, what is the quality of, you know, the noise I live in? And as they, as they see these methods come about, as they see the science and non-scientists working together, they start asking, what can science do for me? Not not just what can I do for science as a citizen, but but how can you help me? Um, you know, one of the examples is um, uh, pygmy hunters and gatherers in the Congo use uh, modified smartphones to to see and document where the illegal poaching is, where there's habitat destruction. Uh, so there's going to be more of that. Yeah, that was really nice to hear about because in my mind I had assumed that. Um, this was something that first world countries would partake in because they have the, uh, maybe they're not so focused on uh, subsistence. Uh, but that was nice to hear that we, that this type of science is benefiting and moving into other areas of the world. Yeah, I think it's exciting too, and and it is mostly in in first world countries. And right now, it is mostly uh, educated, uh, you might say, white middle class people doing citizen science. But it doesn't have to be, and it's changing. I I find the idea of citizen science so inherently democratic. It's it's not about what college you went to. It's not about how much money you have. Uh, it it provides an easy entrance for all kinds of people all around the world to to start looking at some bigger issue. Where do you see citizen science uh, going forward? I kind of asked about how it's right now, it just seems like observations and some very basic science. Are there any real cutting edge projects that you know of that are really different? Or do you see an area that is really lacking that could use um, citizen science? Well, I know the program Fold It, which asks people to, uh, video gamers to help synthesize new proteins and to look at designs of proteins is, is starting to ask its video gamers to do more and more complex things to, you know, to help design new proteins. Um, I think some citizen science programs allow that, allow people to really ascend a scale and allow talented people to get better and better at something. Um, and actually that's true in all of them. I know in my area, 
the uh, a, a physician uh, who used to you know specialize in in stomach problems is now uh, doing the flora of the Gila National Forest, and and he's an expert in mosses and liverworts and hornworts, and and he's being asked to go all around to do similar work. So some people really are becoming experts, and this is giving them the opportunity a way to do that. Um, so there's that. There's kind of like a whole new avenue. I mean, what excites me the most, I think, is when you think about it, we have so many uh, creative people in the world. I mean, we're always seeing population as a problem, which it is. Seven, over seven billion people. That's a huge problem. But there's also all this creativity that people have, all this energy, all this ability that we don't harness, we don't use because we've kind of put them in little boxes. Well, you're a plumber and well, you're a teacher and well, you're a writer and, and, you know, you're this and you're that. Um, and I think citizen science, if I was going to think of the most exciting, biggest way it could act as a revolution is to allow more and more and more and more people to jump out of that box and to become something new and to, and to fulfill their potential in ways that weren't possible before. I'm I'm completely with you, um, and that, that does make me really excited. Yeah. You mentioned climate change before, and how this will, some of these projects deal specifically with it, but how uh, a lot of the data that we're gathering, I suppose, can be used um, for the discussion about climate change. And um, I wondered what you had to say about how uh, specifically citizen science is kind of driving driving the topics. Um, do you find that it is the citizens themselves that are feeling empowered by what they're finding out, or are they kind of unsure of what they're seeing and handing it off um, for interpretation and and other people are kind of helping drive the issues from there? Right, right. Well, it's really a collaboration. I think um, I'm involved in a program called Nature's Notebook, where you go out and you tag plants in your backyard, say, and you watch their life cycles. You look at when they when they leaf and when they flower and when they fruit. And you do this year after year, and there are thousands of people all over America doing that with plants in their backyards and, and in their looking at animals. When do insects hatch? When do the birds migrate? So you have all these eyes on the ground now. You know, Cornell Lab of Ornithology has 200,000 volunteers looking at birds, for example. So you have all these people on the ground looking at what's happening. And from that, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, how climate change is, is actually happening in terms of uh, big landscapes. And I think scientists are pretty excited about the fact that they can do big projects, you know, landscape-wide projects, continent-wide projects. And so they're uh, involving more and more people, uh, as the people have access to the data, that's one of the great things about online and kind of the new collaboration among scientists and non-scientists is the data is being made uh, public and available. You know, here's you, – you inputted this information to a national database. Well, here's what we're seeing. Here's where your information went. So those people are starting to understand climate change better and to become more involved, I think, in the uh, public discussion of it. So kind of back to the research that you did on the tiger beetle, when you obviously uh, dove in straight away and wanted to get in as deep as you could without spending too much money to study them, um, what would you suggest, though, is a really great way or easy way for someone to try it out, kind of dip their toe in to see if they think they might 
like doing something like this. Right, right. Well, there's a wonderful clearinghouse online. It's called SciStarter. Uh, S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R. And it's, uh, started by Darlene Cavalier, who's, who's a big proponent of citizen science. And you can just go online. You can, you can input, uh, what subject you're interested in, whether you want to work outside, whether you want to work inside, uh, whether you have any money to spend or none at all, whether this, you want to do this with your children or you want to, so you, you know, and you can immediately find what projects are out there, which, as you said, there are, there are so many, uh, uh, and it's, you know, it'd be great to just start with some local projects, um, some state projects. Uh, it's also nice to jump into some of those big national projects because they're often so well organized. Um, so you can, you can almost Google what you're interested in and then add in the word citizen science and you're going to find, uh, you know, projects that are, that are available to you. How do you feel about some of the, the websites online? You do mention a few of them that, incentivize people with with money right uh, right to to actually perform experiments to think critically about problems we haven't been able to solve yeah you know that's a wonderful kind of mix of business and and science and and so what they do is they just say anyone can i'm sure they vet them but but you come up with kind of a business proposal uh i need to retool this this lab piece of lab equipment and i'm offering $500 for anyone who can do it and it kind of goes from that scale all the way up to you know uh, cure a certain disease uh so i know young people who are uh you know phd struggling you know graduate students who go on regularly hoping to make a little extra money with some invention they have. I think that's, I, you know, it's, I think there are new ways that citizen science will, will mesh with education, will mesh with business, uh, will mesh with public policy that we haven't even seen the big, we haven't even seen yet. And, and that's kind of one of the ways it might happen. Well, Sharman, it's been really wonderful talking to you. I think we're running a little along on time. Um, that's all the questions I have for you. All right. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Sharman at Russell. Well, thanks. Great interview, Charlie. I found it really interesting to hear what Sharman had to say. Thanks. It was a real joy to talk to her. And reading her book was actually really, really fun because it really, like I mentioned in the interview, brought me back to my biologist past where I could experience all of the same things she was. Although, you know, there was a point when you were being extra polite and you were talking about her temptation to fudge some data and she actually called herself out on it. And I wanted to just bring that up because, of course, that is the dark side of citizen science is the sense that, you know, people, first of all, that some of the citizen scientists might not have the same maybe kind of ethics or training as, as scientists. And so they will maybe find it more difficult to resist the temptation to please the people that they want to impress with their data, right? They want to find a finding. Like if you're spending your every weekend, you know, all your free time doing something, you want to get something out of it. And when the data don't turn out the way you want them to, there is that temptation of just tweaking a number here and there. I think it is really, really sensitive to that factor. And because uh, they, they're not... Uh, they haven't been trained as scientists from the get-go. I mean, we are no less susceptible to that type of integrity problem, but we at least understand what the the impact of that is. And it might not actually lead to the result we want if we were to do that. People that aren't trained might not understand that. And uh, that's a real fear. But her hope and, and my hope, because I actually, I guess I'm on the side of this, is that we if we throw enough data at it and we get people 
if we raise them up with this, these types of issues that we can overcome that. Yeah, I mean, and that's, well, that's, that's, of course, one of the major benefits of citizen science is that you have a major data set, right? You can re- actually sample the population as opposed to just a s- tiny subsample of the population. And so hopefully, you know, over, over the course of many, many, many observations, these kinds of little mistakes or errors, um, you know, kind of, kind of get washed away and the effect comes through. Uh, but I do also think that there's another problem that some scientists worry about, and that is that people then feel that if they spend a week or so, you know, boning up on the research and, and, and becoming somewhat conversant on a topic that that makes them experts, that makes them, um, you know, be able to have the same gravitas and opinions as scientists who have spent decades researching a topic. You're exactly right. That's one of my fears as well. Um, not to say that they shouldn't be able to talk with some authority just having done it, but um, there is a big difference. And I'm not sure that you could actually know that there's a big difference between someone who's gone through uh, a decade of schooling and research background to actually be able to have some uh, gravitas with what they say. Yeah, I mean, there, it's, you know, in these very complex data sets in particular, there's a pattern recognition that can only happen with lots and lots and lots of experience and trials. And so that's one thing that I hope that as citizen science becomes more and more popular, as I hope it does, uh, gets underscored often enough where, you know, there is something about you really do have to spend a lot of time, not only with a particular data set, but with a topic in general to understand the patterns that are going to emerge. And I think over the next long period of time, that's what we'll find out. Is citizen science merely something that can educate? And are citizens only tools for scientists to actually generate um, worthy results? Or is there something more to it and they can actually uh, have a movement grow up from, from within them? Or is it always the trained scientists that can make heads or tails of what what they've come up with? Hopefully not. (laughs) So that's it for another episode. Charlie Zetkowalski, thank you so much for being the guest host on this week's Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure being here. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, truffle recipes. It is the holidays. Anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts, so use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. For a special no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Do you have someone on your gift list that's impossible to shop for? Have you considered gifting razors? How about a Harry's razor? Harry's Winter Winston set is only $30 for a sleek chrome razor, three high-quality blades, their amazing shave gel or shaving cream, and it's already wrapped and shipping is free. And as a special limited-time offer for the holiday, Harry's is gifting all listeners to Inquiring Minds $5 off the Winter Winston set with the code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. That's harrys.com, coupon code INQUIRINGMINDSHOLIDAY. Harry's, a shave good enough to gift. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Now imagine opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make this a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. 
To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.